0: It's time to Accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to Episode 645 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I am honored to be joined by my guest today on Accelerate. Joining me is Brandon Bruce. Brandon is COO and co-founder at Cirrus Insight. In this episode, Brandon is going to share his story of riding a 508-mile Endurance bike ride through the Mojave Desert and Death Valley. And then we're going to talk about how sales is like an endurance sport and how the way you need to mentally and physically prepare yourself for long, complex sales share certain aspects with endurance sports. You know, the grit, the resilience, character, values. I mean, you need to be able to pick yourself up after you fall because inevitably it will happen. And when your mind is telling you you have to give up and quit, you then have to suck it up and persist. And so we'll talk about how big part of that is knowing what you stand for in life and in business. So make sure you stick around. Check this out. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 645. Now, friends, if, if you're a top performer in your current sales role and you're looking for a fresh challenge to take your career to the next level, then CenturyLink should be at the top of your list because with its recent acquisition of Level 3, The new CenturyLink is a world leader in providing cloud security, real-time communications, and managed services. And so if you want the excitement, challenge, and rewards that come from selling industry-leading services to the enterprise, then visit centurylink.com forward slash accelerate and join their talent community. That's centurylink.com forward slash accelerate. Also, before I talk with Brandon, let me share with you that the second edition of the Sales Leadership Accelerated Mastermind for SaaS Sales Leaders kicks off on April 24th. That's SaaS Slam for short. And if you remember, we had our first one back in December. Participation at SaaS Slam is limited to founders and CEOs, chief revenue officers, and VPs of sales of high-growth SaaS startups only. Now, we call it the Accelerated Mastermind because in just two days, you'll become better prepared to transform how you sell, how you scale, and how you develop the capabilities of your team to crush your goals. Past participants include companies such as AdRoll, Adobe, MarketStar, G2 Crowd, TalkDesk, and many others. And our corporate partners providing support for Slam, our Storm Ventures, Outreach, Chorus, G2 Crowd, and Membrane. So for more information and to apply for your place at Slam, go to saslam.com. SAS, SAS, Let me say that again. That's S A A S. S L A M dot com forward slash event one the number one and again that's saslam for dot com forward slash event one all right let's get to it with Brandon Brandon welcome to Accelerate
1: thanks for having me Andy I appreciate it
0: hey it's great to talk to you so uh, open the show with the standard question for all my guests and that is in your opinion what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today.
1: See, I thought the question was going to be, how tall am I? Because when I show up to a sales event, that's the first question I get since I'm (laughs) about 6'8". So people want to know, how tall are you and do you play basketball and so forth? Uh, But if we back up and say, what's the biggest challenge in sales today? I think it's adapting to the fact that the things that have worked or seem to have worked for several years have now diminishing returns. Some of them are not working or at least not working the way that they used to. So, I think it's fair to say, you know, five, even going back 10 years, but even five years ago, sending out lots and lots of emails to, you know, the biggest mailing list was winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you could get a lot of people and send them all email, you could do pretty well. Uh, now that it's diminishing returns, I mean, the emails have to be so much better, so much more intriguing, so much more personalized, and, and you've really got to focus on getting that, that strong often list versus just the biggest list wins. Uh, Similarly on phone calls, I mean, it's just so hard to reach people now, to not get voicemail, to get folks to call you back, to have an interesting enough uh, pitch that people want to engage. And so, uh, you know, this is a kind of an overarching big challenge. It's figuring out the mechanisms where you can actually get in touch with people and have a conversation. Because without the conversation, there's no no relationship to build. Uh, So it's figuring out how to get in touch by by email, by phone, on LinkedIn, uh, through postal mail, by showing up in person, some combination of those things, uh, figuring out that right combo for the right prospect so that you can actually start the process.
0: Well, let me ask the question then. So instead of framing it as what's not working in sales, so let's talk about what is working in sales.
1: You know, I think what we found recently and over the past couple years that has worked the best for us is simply making it easy for the customer to do business with us. So an example of that would be, you know, rather than spending an inordinate amount of time sending out emails to try to get people to attend a webinar, trying to get people to meet with us, you know, hey, would you be willing to meet? Hey, I'd love to show you a demo, etc. Instead, simply sharing our calendar on the website. This is our calendar. This is all of our availability. And if you'd like to meet with us, uh, choose a time of your convenience we will automatically send you an invite that has you know, the Zoom meeting or the Go-To meeting or the conference dial-in number on it, and we will call you at the appointed time and we will show you, you know, what our product does. That seems to work really well and it seems to align with some of the stats that we've seen over the last couple of years that says a lot of customers have already done a substantial amount of research before engaging mm-hmm. uh, in a conversation with a company. right? So they've already been to the website, they've already watched some videos, they've downloaded some white papers. Now they've got a question or now they're sort of curious to see, hey, is anyone there? Is anyone minding the store? Can I I get in touch with you? And so making that part easy uh, has been great for us. That's how we schedule most uh, of our demos with customers is they're saying, this is the date and time I want we'll see you there. And it totally eliminates the back and forth of uh, hey, when do you want to meet? A uh, Tuesday? Now Tuesday's out. Now that just got booked up. And oh, what time zone are you in? Uh, and we use our own software for this, Cirrus Insight, to do the bookings. Uh, but there's lots of options out there for just making it easy for people to schedule time with us, because uh, time is the big, sure. is the big commodity that all of us run out of. And so it's making it easy for the saying to the customer, we've got time if you want it, and letting them choose what time works for them.
0: So if people go to a Cirrus Insight website, they'll see a calendar.
1: Yeah. They say, yeah, if you want to book a demo, you click through, you'll see our calendar. You choose the time you want, and we will make sure that we are in touch with you at the appointed date and time. And you can write back and say, hey, I'd, I'd rather have, I'm going to be you know, driving in my car. I'd rather just have a phone call instead. Great. We'll, we'll make that happen. So it's uh, it's giving the customer some power to control. This is when I want to see it. This is what I want to see. This is how I want to see it. And we're saying, no problem. We'll see you there.
0: Oh, I like that yeah I just I just went to your website to <laughs> schedule a demo. Um, there you go yeah you test out <laughs> yeah, no, that's very cool. so then there's a great great example for for people listening to this is something that's so simple to do to make it so easy for people to get in touch with you, and you know there's some pushback people say. Yeah, you know, they don't like the uh, the links in emails, right? When you say, "Yeah, here's my here's my Calendly link, or here's my Schedule Once link, or Acuity, or whatever you use," uh, you know, click on it because they think, "Oh, you're putting it onto the customer to schedule." But this is this is something. Somebody's visiting your website. This is extremely simple to do. I'm sure it aggregates from you know your SDR team or whomever is the front line for you, and and uh, simple, easy.
1: Yeah, and I think to your point, the pushback is fair. And in a lot of the examples that I've seen, whether it's emails that we're writing to send out to our prospects and customers or emails that I've received, there's a way that sometimes it's written where it does look like you're putting it on the customer. You know, hey, why don't you click this link and schedule time with me, right? And that's kind of one vibe. And then the other is more of a, hey, you know, for your convenience. Yeah. Uh, If there's any time you have in the next two weeks that you want to do it, I will make sure that I or someone on my team is there for you. And that's just a different. You get to the same result, but the journey is a lot friendlier and a lot more. Hey, we're here for you when you want us to be, versus a. Why don't you go use my tool that I've set up (laughs) so that I can get a demo from you? Exactly. It's a a different vibe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, to your point, it's really a matter of wording. Right? I mean, we tend to, I think this is, this is something that, that is, at least in my mind, is problematic, is, is I think certainly with newer generation in sales, and this is not meant to be a, a jibe at millennials, it's just it's across society we see this, as, is people think words don't matter as much. And words, words matter. Something simple like do? that is a 180 degree difference in customer experience and customer perception
1: was so on a panel, an in-person panel earlier this week, and the question got asked from the audience, hey, you know, what, what skills are you looking for that seem to be lacking? In other words, where's the gap in supply-demand in the marketplace? I think the expected answer was "You know, we need to find more candidates with expertise in the STEM disciplines, right? We need more mm-hmm. folks with coding acuity and so forth. I think that was the anticipated answer. That was the setup. Uh, but the person up on the panel Answered and said, "You know what? We really struggle to find is people who can write uh, across any of our positions. We need people that can, you know, not just put words down, but connect words so that they make sense uh, and so that they're readable, digestible, so that it puts our best, you know, foot forward out to our customers and partners and other constituents." And then the audience member said, "Really? That's so. That's a gap." And the, the panelist said, "Absolutely." Like we are really struggling to find folks that are you know strong, confident writers, and when we find one, we try to get them right away. So I think I think your point is exactly right. Uh, words matter, and the way that we use them, whether on a phone call, or in an email, or when we show up to do a live presentation goes a long way to communicating to the customer, you know, are we professional? Are we going to take care of them throughout the relationship? Do we kind of have our act together? We know what we're talking about. Um, and in just this example, it matters how it's phrased to, you know, I want to get a meeting from you versus I want to meet with you if you want to meet with me and if so, I want to do it at your convenience. Right. And it's a much different approach.
0: And you could use those words and put the same link on it. And I said the the perception is 180 degrees different
1: yeah absolutely
0: yeah um well and so back to this panel thing I, I, the answer i think an intriguing answer and I love the fact that that someone brought that up to me the writing is part of to me it's sort of a broader category, which is and i've you know been working with clients on this is, is want people that have human skills you know there's not just writing it's it's uh, you know, people have a sense of what they stand for, people with character. I mean I'm hearing this right. more and more. People with you know, character, that values that support you know, what they stand for, who they are as a person and so on that, that that you can sense. And
1: yeah, we had a group of we had a group of teachers visit our office this past year, uh we probably had two dozen, elementary through middle through high school. And they just kind of wanted to see, you know, how does this software company operate? Could be interesting. Maybe we can share a few things back to our classes with students. And and so, again, my expectation was they really wanted to spend time in the lab, right? Let's Mm -hmm. say with people that are for a living, that are creating, you know, videos, uh, they're producers. Um, At the end of the day, when I said, look, I, I hope your time here has been useful. Are there takeaways that you can use or do you need more information from us? And they said, uh, what was most useful is just spending time with the team, listening to how they talk with customers on the phone, uh, seeing how you guys do the screen shares, how you respond by email. Like, we're really most interested in the soft skills and communicating those to our students versus the hard skills of, like, you know, you need to be proficient in the following uh, Office software and you need to learn how to do some front end coding and it's best to have a working uh, knowledge of HTML. They were far more interested. I mean, 100% of the feedback came back of, oh, this was really interesting on the soft skill side. We're going to try to communicate that back to our students so that they can practice that. And that's the most important thing they can take coming out of school. Um, Which, yeah, I just thought that was particularly interesting because there's been very much a focus on hard skills, technical skills, that there's a gap there. And uh, no disputing that. Uh, But the pendulum can swing sometimes too far where it's like, let's just teach everybody technical skills. And what we're left with, you know, a lot of technical skills, but not necessarily, uh, you know, hey, let's all collaborate and work together. Let's solve problems. Uh, let's go out and be able to sell. Once we've created a technical solution, how do we connect with other people and share with them what we've built? And that's where those uh, quote unquote soft skills come in.
0: Yeah, well, I'd say that the shortage of training on soft skills is, is not entirely due to the fact we're producing more technically trained people, but, you know, even in the. Softer disciplines at the undergraduate level, whether it's you know liberal arts like I came through yeah the, that's that's not being prepared there being people aren't being adequately prepared in those those majors either and and that's why I always like when I have guests on the show that you know might make a comment about you know we've got these generational issues and so on I'll say, well, yeah, but you know go to a sales team that's that's well trained that's really operating, and you're going to see. You know, young people who are very skilled at the at the interpersonal, and so it's just, I think, how do we train people? I think that's one of the things. Is, I think one of the things that's a little different with the newer generation is is there's been less emphasis placed on that somehow through their socialization. So when they come into the workplace, I think employers have a bigger task to start inculcating some of the the values and other things in the employees than they might have had, you know, one or two generations ago.
1: Ian, yeah, I've had the opportunity. We're very close to uh, both Maryville College and the University of Tennessee, and I've had a chance to go in and talk with uh, some undergraduate classes as well as some of the, the business school classes at University of Tennessee. And one of the interesting pieces of feedback is uh, on the curriculum side. Uh, there's often several courses in marketing, right? Let's talk mm-hmm. about the four Ps and so forth. And then there's the financial classes. So you you know you learn how to uh, you know create your balance sheet and PNL statement. Sure. Uh, Etc., and run cash flow. Um, but some of the students and the teachers, the professors, came and said, "You know, we well, we really like to hear from you about sales, because we don't have any classes in sales." And I thought that's so interesting. Um, so perhaps there's this larger kind of cart before the horse national conversation about, uh, hey, if you're studying business at any level, whether undergraduate. Or as part of business school or graduate degree that touches business anyway, um, might we want to include some teaching just about sales, some practicing of doing the sales? Because interestingly, without, without some sales, marketing is not gonna last too long. And, you, and you're really <laughs> never gonna have the chance to flex your financial knowledge because there's no money to manage. And, and so it's interesting to come out with all these skills, but then when it comes to actually doing the work of business, you almost have to start again from scratch in your in your first job, and try to figure out okay, well, well, how do I sell this thing? Like I, I have a sense of how to take it to market. I have a sense of how to manage the money once we make it, but how do we actually make the money? Um, big question mark. Yeah, well, um, yeah so I, I would. I, I'd like to see that more. I'd like to see sales at the forefront.
0: As would I, and I, and there are more undergraduate institutions that are offering some degree programs, some certificate programs uh, you know, within the business major on, on sales. I mean, it's happening slowly but, but surely. But but I think one of the things that's working against it, and I think this is you know, somewhat ironic, is that the rise of, of digital marketing and the way the degree has become pervasive is it's sort of created this sense in a lot of people's minds that, well, geez, all I need to do is you know, put up a website. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you, you laugh because, you know, you could say people. This is what you did, but you guys didn't. You guys went out and actually sold stuff. as but you know, put up a website and we're gonna send a bunch of emails and you know, we'll do some pay per click ads and so on and generate some traffic and that's that's sales. And it's and it's I find with especially in the small business arena is it's very seductive for a lot of business owners who aren't comfortable with the idea of selling anyway to say, well, yeah, we don't really have to sell. We just have to market.
1: Absolutely. Well, and, and we've seen. A number of companies have some success with that, but I suspect, based on most of my conversations with with small business owners and founders, that for most of us, that's not the way it is. So, so I've heard folks that will say, "Well, we, you know, we've been in we've been in the lab for a couple of years building our whatever uh, in our in our area, at least our software, our app, and so uh, man, we've got it pretty close. It's almost just right. And then all we got to do is, yeah, put the website up." And, uh, you know, we'll just kind of hire a couple salespeople and, it'll, you know, we'll just go out and sell it. Uh, but it's almost it's an afterthought. It's mm. like, well, now that we've done this really hard product, we'll just take it to market and then the rest will just fall into place as things do. And, and it's like, yeah, we all know some of the great success stories of the companies that just have brilliant engineers and then the product just jumps off the shelves, right? It's, it's more bought than sold. Great. Uh, but I'd say for the vast majority of us, that's not the case right There's a lot of great products out there that never really find a home because they're not fully taken to market in, in a way which is uh, you know best foot forward and let's go talk to customers and get in a feedback loop and improve it and so forth and uh, and yeah, I think that's a mistake. it is it is seductive and there's <laughs> there's a reason we would call it seductive is because you're <laughs> kind of being seduced into this idea that if hey if you load up enough, in your AdWords account, and and do some other basic digital marketing that customers will trip over themselves uh, to get in the door. Uh, not not often the case in my experience, at least.
0: Yeah, I had a guest on the show uh, four or five months ago. who Published a book. Uh, he runs market digital. Ironically, a digital marketing agency, but he, you know, has written this book. Servo. I don't want to call it a rant, but a very strongly worded book. It's, I think it's called "Digital Snake Oil Salesman. or, but basically saying, yeah, in my industry in digital marketing, you know, there's all these these promises that you know are snake oil, and the number one promise is that yeah, you just do the marketing, you don't actually have to sell, and right. yeah, yeah, it doesn't work out very well for most people. Um, so I was going to ask you. I mean, you you do some endurance athletic. Events, um, and I want to sort of dig into that because actually there's a connection to sales as we get through it. But so tell us what you did. You did you rode the Badwater 508.
1: Yeah, so so it was called at the time the Furnace Creek 508. Furnace Creek is a is a real small area. It's got a little in, tiny hotel and in gas De- station out in Death the middle Valley. of Death Valley. Yeah. and uh, so yeah, so the 508 is so named because it's a 508 mile. Uh, single stage bicycle race, meaning you don't bike 100 miles and then stop for a break or go to sleep overnight. You just bike the 508 miles as fast as you can um, and uh, <laughs> through the desert. And it's and it's relatively hot. It was in October. This was many years ago. This was in 2002 when I did this race. Um, it was in October and it still got into the hundreds when we were in Death Valley overnight. And uh, yeah, a ton of fun. And I had done a lot of centuries, 100 mile rides mm-hmm. and, a, and a whole circle Two hundred mile rides. I probably did uh, ten or so of those leading up to it. So I'd gotten fit, um, but then yeah, to go out and have this big experience where I was out there for and I'll you know like you remember some of your old test scores. I was out there thirty five hours and seven minutes, uh, which as an aside included a seventeen minute nap. And uh, why would someone take a nap during a race? Well, I started to hallucinate in the desert, which happens sometimes if you run out of uh, fluid and salt. So I needed to take a little break and as luck would have it, I bolted about five or six Red Bulls, fell right asleep and then woke up 17 <laughs> minutes later and was like, man, we better we better get going. You know, this is a race and, and it worked out well.
0: That's how long I it took for the caffeine when to... It was still dark. I was That's say, how long
1: it took for it to like jolt, jolt me back awake. Jolt you back awake, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I went to sleep when it was still dark and then when I woke up, the sun had risen. And I didn't know this at the time, but I came to find out that that's actually a good strategy. If you need to stay up all night to do something, whether it's work or do a bike race or something else, uh, it's useful to close your eyes when it's still dark, open them again after the sun has risen, and your body is somewhat tricked into thinking, well, I went to sleep at night, and now I'm getting up in the morning. That's a normal thing to do. I must be okay. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's a sustainable practice, like you can't sleep for two minutes a day just by closing your eyes and opening them when it gets bright. Uh, but I think it did help with my energy that day. allowed me to finish the race.
0: So the race, so the rough route of the race, cause Death Valley is not 508 miles long. So was there a loop or something? I've.
1: It, it, it was, it was point to point. Uh, so we started on you know one side of the valley, yeah. uh, in a hotel that started early in the morning and we start biking, wind our way through Mojave, get up in Death Valley, go through the valley overnight and then come back, uh, through we don't make a full loop, but it ended uh, near a marine base at Twenty Nine Palms yeah, yeah. for those familiar with uh, California geography. So we ended at Twenty Nine Palms, and there's you know a little finish line there. And um, yeah, it's a great experience. I think I finished in like fifth place or something like that. So you know there were super fast folks that finished hours before I did. Um, but I got in fit. It was a great it was a great opportunity just to get out and test myself. My brother. Came along, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife came. So they were my support vehicle, kind of keeping me alive, right? Keeping fluids going. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, to the point earlier, it, it, there is an analogy in some respects to to business and into sales because I think in a technical world, and we make software. Uh, progress is usually defined in terms of sprints, literally, right? Yeah, We're in right. sprint number four of 2018, and this is our start date, this is our end date, and it's an agile scrum process. And okay. Um, but business, I think, oftentimes is better viewed as an endurance sport. Like, you not know, necessarily, there are some break points where you can make them break a company. But for most of us, there's a lot of just staying power associated with it. You know, how do you? How do you go through the process? How do you navigate a sale that might take a year to close? How do you build a business up over the course of a decade um, so that it has staying power, so that it's got a strong foundation? And and that means you you keep yourself buoyed up. You don't get too high or too low. um, And you just keep working on that problem. uh, Keep chipping away at it. And that's how the bike race was. uh, Or for anyone that goes out and runs marathons or does any sort of event that takes multiple hours you kind of got to break it into pieces and be willing to go through it a little bit. So halfway through, you might be thinking, I don't know why I signed up for this. Uh, <laughs> you know, Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But if you push through that point and finish, uh, you feel great about it. And all the worries and all the hurt during the race disappears. And then in your mind, you're thinking, you know, maybe I should do this again someday. Um, and so it's interesting how that happens. You can push through a lot of those barriers and end up with a great experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, you Use the words, you know, consistency and persistence, and stick with, you know, sticking to it, and so on. I, I phrase it a little bit differently, which is that, you know, I see it as a matter of character and preparation. You know, it's at the moments when, you know, halfway through, you're thinking, <laughs> why the heck am I doing this? Um, yeah, you know, it's your your character that gets you through. It's your preparation that gets you through, right? It's it's and I, I you know, to me, persistence and resilience are character traits and. And you know we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but it's something I think that's not emphasized enough in in our profession is the importance of character because that's that's how people perceive us when they first meet us as our our character. Um, and so I yeah, yeah. I, think, I know
1: the big words yeah circulating in the education community these days is grit right. Yeah. So sort of teachers are very interested in and trying to communicate and and to the extent possible teach students grit, meaning like, well, yeah, you might get the right answer, you might not, but if you don't, are you willing to, yeah, demonstrate your character by sticking with the problem, working through it, and hopefully coming out the other side with an answer, or at least you've given a great effort trying. And uh, yeah, preparation was a huge part of it. I mean, I knew that I was going to have to bike uh, through the night, and a lot of my prior races and preparation had early morning starts. So you might do two, three hours before the sun rose, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't had any events that really went past sunset. Um, so knowing that I went out with my brother into the hills behind Ojai, California and, uh, you know, bike for three or four hours at night just to make sure I felt comfortable doing that. Biking at night is just a little bit different. You got to get used to the headlights behind you and, and, you know, handling yourself in the dark. So, um, yeah, it's important to do that. And then someone had told me, and so you know, we all choose what we what, what we take on faith. But someone had told me, um, you can always go twice as far as you've gone. And uh, logically, I was like, well, that's not true. Um, <laughs> like that, you know, it's an n plus one problem, right? This is right. mathematically kind of one of those fun, fun little mind tricks. But I was like, for the for the purpose of the five hundred eight, let's stipulate that that's true. Therefore, I should at least have gone. You know, like 250 miles or so in order to prepare for the race. And I'd done lots of 200s, but I hadn't done the 250. So I went out one one day and just decided I was going to do that. So I went from Santa Barbara and, and biked down through Long Beach to the Seal Beach area and then turned around and came back. And, and the course of doing that, just, just by myself and being committed to it, did give me a good shot of confidence going into the race where it's like, well, I've done half of it and this random person told me you can always go twice as far and so uh, I must be able to do it.
0: I'm sure this is of no interest at all to people on the East Coast, but did you stick on the one the whole way. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't spend any time on on the big highways. For those that know Southern California, <laughs> we, you know, I didn't spend any time on on the 405, for example. That yeah. would that uh, a be a very bad idea and b probably illegal. Um, but yeah, I stuck to the one uh, for the vast vast majority of that ride, and then otherwise, you know, the rural streets and and mountain roads. Yeah, um, so. Yeah, it's uh you, you, it's uh, there's a great route and you can find published, you know, accounts by folks that do uh, bicycle traveling for a living that tell you how to get around without messing with the freeways too much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you have to in Southern California. And yeah, that'd be interesting cuz you present an awfully large target on a bicycle.
1: That's true. Yeah, so <laughs> my my hope has always been that that by being a pretty tall cyclist right I'm 6 I'm eight and I'm a 68 frame road cycling bike the uh, you know the people will see me in advance and when I'm biking at night I try to you know wear all the reflective stuff yeah um, but nonetheless yeah you, you kind of in contrast to some other sports where you can really lose yourself in the flow and I try to do that when I'm cycling because that's where you really get kind of your peak performance you also do have to stay kind of alert. Uh, you know, traffic and squirrels and whatever else might come into the road uh, gets pretty important, especially when you're out there by yourself going a long way and maybe riding at night. So, thankfully, uh, all's well so far.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good. So, are you still doing it?
1: Uh, I haven't done anything that long since then. I've done uh, uh, for those that, that like to say, I've done some some randonneuring. Right, so you go out and do you know 250, 300 miles. Um, lately I haven't done as much of that. I still like to go out and ride, but I
0: haven't done the super long stuff lately. So you said doing a random random nearing? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's one of those where it's not a a a race per se, but they give you a route sheet and say, Hey, this is, this is the route and you just go out and do it. And it's generally a, you need to finish within this amount of time, Got it. but there's no, there's no, uh, Water stops along the way. There's no, you know, power bar, cliff bar stations. Right, you go out and you know, you put a couple twenties in your pocket, and if you get hungry, you try to find a, a place to get some food, and you try to refill your water bottle at Seven Eleven or at a local church or wherever you can find. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a very uh, kind of a self sustainable uh, type of approach.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, I hope people were fascinated by, as I was, by the bike conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it is an amazing accomplishment. But I, I think to the point back to sales, just to sort of wrap that part up, is just that, you know, as, as I talk that, to me, that's a matter of character and preparation. I mean, I, I don't do 500 mile rides, I do half marathons, but, you know, there's preparation. There's always moments in anything you're doing where there's this urge to, to quit or, you know, give less of yourself than you think you have. And, and we're in a tough business. It requires that we have persistence and resilience, grit if you talk about it. and it's not talked about enough. and I think part of understanding you know this whole character thing is is actually being being conscious about defining your values and what you're trying to accomplish and your goals and what you stand for and and it comes out when you talk to people.
1: It does, and I think you know for me. At least, in, in and and at some level, it's not about the cost. But for me, I've always had success. Like if I want to do a lot of running in a given year, like I did last year, uh, then I'll sign up for all the runs throughout the entire year before the year starts. Right. So I'd sign up for five or six marathons and stagger them out every two months. And and there's something about just signing up and saying I'm going to show up to these. Mm-hmm. And sure, each each one costs you know thirty, 40, fifty bucks. So there's some financial commitment, but it's more about just the mental commitment of like, oh, I'm going to do this." And I think for most of us, it's pretty hard to back out after that, even even if you've only told yourself. I mean I think from an accountability standpoint, it can be helpful to tell somebody else, right? tell you tell your wife or your husband or some of your good friends,, "Hey, I'm going to do this, and that makes it even harder or to, sign have, up with try to back out even if you're trying to. Yeah, but the best way is to sign up. And I think on the sales side, it's it's saying to yourself, to your team, to the sales director or manager, I'm, I'm signing up to hit quota this month. Um, and these are the deals I'm signing up to get. And if I can get X percent of them, then I'm, I'm going to get to my quota goal. Um, and that's hard to do. I mean, all of us are pretty tempted at the end of the day to keep things a surprise mm-hmm. because it is fun. To, it's fun to surprise people, right? It's fun to walk in the office and be like, "I got this deal. I hadn't even told you that I was working on it, but I did. I did all the work by myself in the back room, and the deal's closed. And here's the check. And it's so awesome. And you, everyone has a big smile, and they're just amazed that that you did it because they didn't even know about it. Um, but that's pretty rare, actually. And so it, it's much better to have kind of a, a, a no surprise or a limited surprise culture, I think, in sales and be pretty transparent about, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. These are the steps I'm trying to take and and, and who's with me, right? Who can help me in that journey to getting the customer? Um, Because if everyone's constantly working on a big surprise, and surprises are rare, that's why they surprise us, (laughs) and none of them come through, then we've had a bad sales experience, right? We might miss our number this month or this quarter. So, you know, I do like, I've heard, you know, uh, people a lot smarter than I have than I am talk about kind of like let's not have surprises, right? Let's try to have some some transparency about what we're working on. And from transparency comes, comes naturally accountability, because we're all talking about the same things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, and ideally your pipeline should be reasonably predictable with with upside potential. And if upside happens, fantastic, right? So all right. Brandon been great. Thank you very much. So tell people how they can find out more about uh, Cirrus Insight and connect with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're at, we're at Cirrus Insight, which is C-I-R-R-U-S Insight.com. So Cirrus, like the high wispy cloud. Uh, last year, uh, people referred to us a couple different ways. One referred to us as Citrus Insight. And so we made a <laughs> video that said we went into the orange juice business, which was kind of fun. And then my favorite one last year was someone introduced me as coming from a uh, Circus Insight, which I thought sounds like maybe the next big company, right? Uh-huh. Insight into the circus industry or something. I was like, that sounds like a fun job, whatever it is. Um, but now we're with uh, Cirrus Insight. We're we're software as a service. We serve sales teams that use Gmail or, or Outlook that want you know power tools in the inbox and the calendar, like email tracking and appointment scheduling and email templates. Etc. And we have a really world-class connector with Salesforce.com. My co-founder, Ryan Huff, is an expert in that platform. Uh, I'm easy to reach by email, brandon at cirrusinsight.com. Certainly on LinkedIn all the time. So uh, we're open book and we're in Knoxville, Tennessee. So if anyone's ever out here visiting uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park or out for a UT game or out to visit the uh, secret city of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, (laughs) <laughs> which was part of the Manhattan Project. All right. Then uh, look us up, give us a shout, and you're welcome to stop by the office and hang out with the team.
0: All right. Well, Brandon, thank you very much, and um, friends, thank you for spending this time with us today. Make sure you come back, join us for next great episode of Accelerate. So, thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.